How are you, Sid? Good, good. Very well. How are you? Good. Sid, I thought maybe we'd start here just by going over um, the day's events, current events, even over the last few days. You want to uh, sure. kind of yeah. get us up to uh, speed here? Sure. Um, okay, so so in these uh, events here, you know, there's lots of people out there who are basically keeping everybody up, you know, plus the end of the course in terms of what's happening specifically. So, and that's fine, but I really don't want to re repeat that. I'll talk about it in terms of the context of what what our approach is. And uh, I'm not going to go into some of the details, which are very clear from anyone who's following the market per se, mm -hmm. uh, because that's been available to, you know, you, you have a lot of professional listeners here and that's been available to everybody else. Basically uh, suffice it to say that since um, Thursday with the uh, most recent uh, Silicon bank situation, that according to uh, Yellen, Janet Yellen was not a problem uh, Sunday morning. Uh, we've had that bailout. We've had the first uh, Republic bailout. Uh, we've had a, a second Credit Suisse event, which I'll talk about briefly in terms of adding uh, information to that. And now we, we have a bailout of all banks who can now go to the Fed and, and keep their value of their uh, decreasing long-term debt at par. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of announced, uh, announced today. Uh, with the bank term funding program, which is the current version of TARP. So it goes on and on, and these things are developing quite rapidly. So I've got sort of two key themes, and ultimately, you know, maybe not tonight, but I think you and I want to be speaking about uh, how do you invest, how do you maintain your, your um, portfolio, or what do you even do in this kind of environment, because we're clearly in a bailout kind of environment right now. Uh, so... Uh, I'll add my sort of uh, approach in terms of looking at what's really happening. And there's two themes to that. One theme is that this really isn't a problem of liquidity. Let me rephrase that. There's a lot of correlations here of things that are going on. Liquidity correlations, credit correlations, bailout correlations. But the, the question is, what's the ultimate cause? And the ultimate cause is something which uh, I believe is just the general social milieu of what's going on. Uh, in society overall. And what's the second theme around that? Well, it's the milieu because all the reasons people are giving for illiquidity, credit situations, FTX, Credit Suisse 1, Credit Suisse 2, etc., these situations have been here for years, yet they didn't cause any imminent problem except from time to time, like 2008, 2020, and right now. So uh, what I'm going to get into is, you know, why is, uh, what's the, what's the real issue, but also, um, you know, how do you deal with the current real situation? And the current real situation is we are getting these credit events, liquidity events, et cetera, coming up fairly regularly. And that is starting to affect us in terms of the bear market we're in. The bear market started January of 2000 and, uh, 2022. We've basically been in a correction phase since then. So, you know, what, what do you do with that as it evolves or stops evolving and maybe comes back later? Okay, so that's that's the first part. The second part is, you know, what's really happening? Um, I'll just I'll just give a really, really, really quick review. Here's what the long story is. I'm going to give a short version of the long story. But because I'm an Elliott Wave follower and I'm a psycho follower in a very big way, and I've studied the history, this is sort of really what's been happening. 
there's been events going on for a long time and they've been accelerating. So I'm going to run through them real quick. It'll take me uh, a minute and a 15, a minute and 15 seconds, but I, I think it'll be sort of fun. Is that okay? Absolutely. Take us through. Okay. okay. 1792, after the revolution in America, they're on the pure gold standard. Money is gold. 1835, 1897, 1907, three bank runs, three depressions. Not too pleasant. Now, people were the old Protestant ethic, et cetera, et cetera. They'd just gone through a huge bear market before all this started. So they were pretty tight, pretty conservative. Know what they call moral hazard. The term even wasn't known then. But then because of all the problems that these depressions occurred, and we're not talking 29 to 32 or 1930s. I'm talking 1835, Andrew Jackson, 1897, Cleveland, 1907. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, J.P. Morgan. These are big events that had an effect. Woodrow Wilson introduces the Fed in 1913. They basically get off gold. Now they're in the paper economy. So it took 113 years to get there. That was the slower part of the cycle. 1934, Roosevelt eliminates the right of Americans to hold gold. It's illegal. That was a big event. 1963, the Amer Americans, they're totally off the gold standard. And uh, you can't get gold uh, at all for, for, for paper when you go to, 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 to the government. And you can't get silver. They're off the silver standard. 1972, even the pretend standard for gold, there was still a bit of a pretend standard. Nixon knocks off there a pure paper economy. So now you're uh, 190 years into, into what's been going on. Okay. Now, 1987, the crash. And I was there for that. I guess I'm getting old. 1987 crash, big shock. Is it 29 all over again? People forgot about the ones before that. Massive money, massive bailouts. It gets attributed to um, uh, portfolio insurance, et cetera, et cetera. That's not why it happened, but, but that gets bailed out. 1992, a second crash. Uh, the real estate crash, that gets bailed out. Alan Greenspan's all the way through this. 1999. You've got the Y2K crash and the long-term capital market crash, massive bailouts. Now we're getting more and more and more paper money. We started from pure gold in 92. They got off gold under Roosevelt, the second Roosevelt, and now we're pure paper and it's building up big time. Now, this is very interesting, Carl. In 2000, and uh, I'll, this is a test, so, so stay alert, Carl. I'm going to ask you a question. In oh. 2007, it's, it'll be easy, 2007, all the banks in the United States had cash reserves, reserves in cash that they had with the Fed. That number was $50 billion. All right, five zero, $50 billion. That was 2007. After the 2008 crash, give me your best guess as to what the reserves, the mandated reserves and the actual cash reserves had gotten up to. It went now? No, no, just in 2008, after the great financial crisis, what they call the great financial crisis, banks are required to have $50 billion in cash. Uh, what do you think it was after that, after the crisis in 2008-9? I don't know. I, my guess would be as good as anyone's. $3 trillion. So what does that mean, Sid? It, what it means is that the money that the banks had, that, had, that they had to have on on reserve at the Fed, and the money came from the Fed in the first place, they were liquefied by 60 times Yes, in one year. So what that means is the government had to increase 
their liquidity to all the banks by 60 times because of the great financial crisis. What it means is that uh, that was a big event and the world changed. The world changed. Banks were getting bailed out big time in 2008. Not big, massive. Can I stop you for a sec? Yeah. So what happens with all the losses? Oh, uh, the assets get written up. We've been in asset inflation. The assets get written up. The losses disappear. The same way that if you have a uh, a $400,000 house and a $400,000 mortgage, they take the value of the house up, the price of the house up. All of a sudden, you're liquid and you're rich. You've made money. It's all on paper. It's not, it's, it's not in gold, but that's what happens. Losses disappear. Okay. As long the balance, as the, system, the balance sheet increases. The balance sheet increases. Absolutely. And, you know, your, your assets go up, your liabilities go up a bit, and your equity goes up. So they call that income. That's what happens. Now, as long as the system keeps operating, everything is good. That's when there's a financial system that's not based on barter. It can go for a while. Right. Now. Now, that's 2008. So we got from 1792 to 2008. But the big changes have only been going on since 87. So we're into uh, 2008. Now it's 2020. Uh, boom. Massive crash. A one-day crash. And Neil Cash Carry, et cetera, infinite money. Infinite money. Uh, Trump, the, the fiscal conservative, make America great again, takes up the national debt by... 20, 20, uh, 16, 18% in one afternoon. That was the second mega, 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 the third mega event. The first was 87. The second was 2008. That was 2020. Now we're into, we're, we're actually going uh, uh, hyperbolic. We're going almost straight up in terms of liquidity. Now, we have not had inflation since uh, Volcker in 1980. It wasn't because of what Volcker did. It was because of what the market did. And people forgot about inflation. Inflation doesn't exist. You remember the lady, the professor, Stephanie Kelton, with her, uh, what was it called, uh, modern monetary theory? Mm-hmm. Basically, money doesn't matter. You can print all the money you want. It's all good. There's so much productivity in the economy. It doesn't exist. There's no problem. And this is what they've been teaching, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, transitory inflation shows up in 2022. That's pretty small. All of a sudden, it's real inflation. Boom, quantitative tightening. No more quantitative easing. Now our time frames are tiny, right? Yeah. How long does that go on for? Well, you and I talked about this. We had a pension fund collapse in Britain. Very quietly, it bailed out. That's liquidity. We have a Credit Suisse collapse. Not this week. <laughs> At the end of last year, that gets quietly bailed out, right? And uh, remember, we're talking about them saying, oh, this is not good, right? Yeah. And then we have something, oh, it was theft. It was, it was bad. It was just a bad guy. It, you know, it, politicians. We have something called FTX. We talked about that. I said, this is not going to be, this is a serious situation. It's not contained. It's not about fraud. It's, not, it's about credit. Because the guy at FTX was doing what everybody else was doing. As long as you can write the assets up, that's okay. And then FTX sort of goes away. That's been quiet for a while. And all of a sudden, boom. Friday, or sorry, Sunday, you know, Biden is telling the world everything is fine. The American banking system is in good shape. Janet Yellen saying not a problem, and boom, now we get two or three instantaneous tarps in like three or four days. Okay, so that is where we're at as of 
close, <laughs> close the business today. So what's happened is that um, bank reserves have, have gone up dramatically. Now, the bank reserves were created by the banks. It's basically what 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 uh, Bernanke used to call, or somebody used to say Bernanke was talking about helicopter money. We're back into like supersonic jet money uh, being rained upon uh, by the Fed, being given to the big banks, being given back to the small banks. That's what's happening. And they're trying to stop a, it's not a liquidity crisis. It's correlating with the liquidity crisis. It's not a credit crisis. A lot of banks saying, oh, there's theft, there's fraud. No, it's not. It's correlated with that. But there's always been theft and fraud. We have a crisis of confidence that's going on. And this is what they're trying to stop at the present time. So for people listening, if you look in the nest, we actually have, uh, I think, four or five slides up there. Um, and Sid, if you can kindly pull up the, the first one that you have for today's spaces, do you want to sort of walk us through that in a little bit more detail? Sure. Um, so first, let me see. First one is what, it, uh, what is happening now, not the narrative, just the facts. Okay. What is happening now, not the narrative, just the facts. So first I'll give my prejudices, and it's really a thinking uh, conversation. It's, it's an invitation for people to think about think about it. I'm looking for feedback as well. I'm not lecturing, and, and you know, I'm not a humorist either. I mean, I try to be a little funny, but but I'm 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 trying to stay away from the news. I'm trying to get back what's really going on. So what's happening now? Number one, Credit Suisse. You know, somebody posted a, a day ago. Oh, Credit Suisse is looking looking bad. So my response was, Credit Suisse has been looking bad for 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> they've been. It's gone from a hundred dollars to two dollars long before the end of last year. So this is not a new problem, right? So when you're reading today's Financial Times, oh, they are Kagos, oh, they took money from the Nazis, oh, they had bad clients, they were, you know, they, they, they're going after spying on executives. It's nothing to do with that. There's a crisis of confidence. The Swiss banking system is under a lot of pressure because the Americans have, have, have uh, militarized the U.S. dollar, and they're all short U.S. dollars. And money has got into U.S. banks away from Credit Suisse. And that's really what's going on. So you're having a crisis of confidence in all the currencies except the U.S. currency, but confidence in the banks in the U.S. So that's, that's the first thing that's really happening. This is not about specific institutions. It's about confidence in institutions, period. First, it hit the one which was already failing for 20 years. You know, they did the big merger with Credit Suisse first Boston when just after greed was good with uh, with uh, Michael Douglas and Wall Street. And that's a whole story in itself. Now, they're, now they're trying to get rid of, uh, of first Boston. They're trying to separate investment banking from banking. Well, that's what the Glass-Steagall Act did in the 1930s. And that's what Clinton reversed. So we're just going through these cycles. That's number one. Number two, interest rates. Right. I'm going to say something that uh, that. Some people agree with Bob Prechter, Elliott Wave guy. He totally agrees. That's has been his theory. The Fed does not set interest rates. It's impossible. The Fed may set interest rates for when they lend money, but people up until at least this today don't borrow money from the Fed. They borrow from the market. The market sets rates. So if you look at the Fed funds rate, you're going to see it went up and up and up from 1960 to 80. Then it went down and down and down to zero. Well, technically and historically, 
Once you go to zero, long way to go up, go and that's up, number one. Number two, long-term trends are not short-term trends. So when you go from zero after having a, a 30-year, 40-year decline in rates, you're, stab- you're establishing a new trend. So we know that rate's going up. Now, how do we know that rate's going up apart from technical? What does technical mean? Technical means you don't go along with the current newspaper theory, the government theory, the political theory. You go with, the, with, with what you see on the price in the market. And then you can stand back and say, why is it? Well, they say it's about emotions. Well, it is about emotions because emotions determines herd behavior and herd behavior determines prices and the way markets trade. Let's look at the, at the long bond rate. The long bond rate declined for 40 years, actually declined for about 5,000 years. And I, I, I've shown that chart before. But when we've declined from 80 up until 2020 and gone to zero, now we're going up. That rate's going to keep going up, right? Now, why mm-hmm. is that rate going to keep going up? Because that's really what sets the market. Even the short-term rates are set by the market. Because if the Fed has too low a short-term rate, um, people have to have to buy uh, long-term assets. So that's where the money goes goes to. The Fed follows. The Fed doesn't lead. Um, now, why why are these rates actually going up? They're going up because the cost of capital is going up. And why is the cost of capital going up? Because government has gotten to be a monster size. Uh, it's a monster. And just to give an example, uh, the average debt per U.S. citizen, federal and personal debt per U.S. citizen, is about right now eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000. But the average debt plus social obligations is $500,000 per man, woman, and child. If you go to uh, usdebtclock.org or usdebtclock.net, you'll see it. That's half a million dollars per person, and it's getting big. It's getting huge. That's why the long rates are going up, and that's why the short rates are going up. The Fed follows. The Fed doesn't lead. Now, uh, third column, uh, Ken Griffith, Griff, Griffin in the United States, guy at Citadel, he says, you know, uh, the c- capitalism is, is, is breaking down. Larry Fink. Uh, BlackRock, he's saying it's a challenge to capitalism uh, as we speak, and and Carl Icahn, the same thing. Well, is that really true? They're talking about moral hazard. Well, actually, you know, uh, when a guy jumps off the roof of First Canadian Place in Toronto, he's alive until he hits the street. So just before he hits the street, oh, he's going to die. Well, actually, he was going to die when he climbed up on the roof. The problem started a long time ago. So technically, we can tell by the momentum and by the derivatives and the way it's changing. That's what's sort of going on. The fourth thing is all about technicals. You have to look at the – well, I, I think what you do is if you look at the big long cycles, and I'm, I'm saying, you know, this is sort of funny for guys who aren't into long cycles, short cycles, et cetera. But if you go back to 1720, we, we hit a boom at 1720, and people talk about it. That was tulips. That was uh, – so see, bubble, yeah. that was the Mississippi bubble. But guess what? That thing had, had occurred over a period of 200 years. That was followed by, that was, that was the first, what they call grand super cycle under Elliott Wave Theory. Then we had a 90-year bear market, 90-year bear market. Then you had the revolutions in 1776 in America, 17 in uh, France. We started the mm-hmm. bull market. And uh, that that big uh, bull market uh, went up until, uh, believe it or not, 1929. 
with a few ups and downs, you know. That's so 29 was the second what they call grand super cycle within the submillennial wave was started even earlier. Then you had a three, four year grand super cycle. That was the 90% reduction of the stock market. And we've been on grand super cycle f- five since then. We, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, we've been on grand super cycle uh, three, excuse me, since then, number three. So it was uh, number one was before 1720. <clears throat> number two was 1720 to 1790. Number three was 1790 to uh, 29. And that was uh, three. Then 29 to 32 was four. We just finished five at the end of, uh, of, uh, of 2021. And now we're actually getting the big, big, big correction, which is the grand super cycle four. That's Elliott Wave Theory. And, you know, as a technical analysis, looking at it from a big scale, but you can break it down to a small scale. So I think that's what is uh, happening. My, my model comes from uh, Elliott Wave. It also comes from a study of history. And we discussed this last time, but I'm also applying the same principles. And it's in the slides. Warren Buffett, Jesse Livermore, George Soros, Nassim Taleb, and Ray Dalio. It all, it all comes together. So. That's how, how I look at it, and that's how, you know, probably this weekend we'll address what do you do in a market like that. But that's sort of what's really happening. So a lot of, you know, there's a lot of spaces that are hosted during market hours, and a lot of it kind of, <clears throat> it's good for traders. Um, and right now, it's, a, you know, in the markets, it's a great time for trading stocks uh, versus investors, uh, to, to be frank. But a lot of those spaces are just kind of, have, they have a lot of entertainment value. But there isn't a lot of substance behind. It's a lot of reactiveness, reactive behavior, and people get caught up in this. Can you kind of better explain for people exactly what the Fed's job is to do with interest rates? Because there's a lot of confusion around what the Fed does, what their purpose is. You know, right now, everybody's waiting for a Fed pivot. Hey, maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. But you think that rates are still going to go up. So can you just kind of break, give us your, your sort of thought process around what the Fed's job is and where rates are probably headed? Sure. First of all, you can hear me, right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, the Fed w- was put in place by Woodrow Wilson because America was just about at a revolution in the 1890s, a communist revolution in the 1890s. There was a farmer revolution. There was a bad depression, and then we had world. We had a we had a second depression in 1907, 1910. Then we had a war. So Woodrow Wilson came in and said, look, we need to control money. We can't have banking banking crises, and we can't have poverty, and we got to make money more available. And there's a long history behind that. That whole problem started with Andrew Jackson's depression in 1837, 1840. So the Fed was put together by Woodrow Wilson to provide money for America. That was it. End of story. Now, they never imagined that what would happen. Because at that time, U.S. in the U.S., income tax was introduced in 1914. There was no income tax when the Fed came in, and government was tiny. So, and there was a hate of big business, right? J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. I'm not sure if you studied the robber barons in school. You probably didn't. But when I went to school, oh, these were the bad business guys who caused all the issues. Because that was what they call the narrative, right? Now, mm-hmm. over time, what happened was... The Fed, as, as the government got bigger and bigger, the Fed got bigger and bigger. 
going to do over time is provide funding, i.e. paper currency, for the government. And that's all the Fed does. The Fed pretends they can control interest rates. They pretend they can control the business cycle, but they never have. The, the business cycle just occurs and the Fed follows. So it's, it's a, I'll use the modern term, it's a narrative to justify the Fed printing all the money that's required for the government. And when people lose confidence in the banking system or it's still not working and there's a bank run, and there's been a bunch of them. Some, there have been a stock market crashes and some bank runs recently. Uh, that's what the Fed does. Now, if you look at interest rates, very, very short-term interest rates, you're going to notice first the rates move and then the Fed acts. The rates move and the Fed acts. Now, the narrative is, oh, yeah, the, uh, the futures curve is up. The, uh, uh, the, uh, they're predicting the Fed's going to be causing the, the system to take rates up, causing the system to take rates down. That's not what's really happening. The reason the futures go up on the yield curve, the, the, the zero curve, and the reason the market rates go up is because uh, people require a bigger return on their capital, short term or long term. Be and why is that? It's usually for risk, whether it's inflation risk or whether it's liquidity risk or whatever kind of risk it is. The Fed simply follows. So when the rates were going up already, as inflation was coming in, in uh, the end of 2022, the Fed says, oh, we got we to cut inflation. We got to kill inflation. We're taking the rates up. The rates are already up. They're following. It'd be embarrassing if the Fed's keeping rates at zero and if the market is taking rates to 3 and 4%. That'd be an embarrassment. You can't do that. So they got to pretend they're doing something. There's only one thing the Fed can do actively. That's print money. That's all they can do. They can print money or they can get rid of the money by selling bonds back to the street. That they can do. But they can't set rates. Now, if they print money, in theory, supply and demand, rates should go down. Well, you know what? As long as you have confidence of people and you print lots of money and assets go up and people have money and you have confidence, rates go down. But as soon as the confidence goes, and we've been through cycles of confidence and not confidence, that's when rates go up. Basically, what causes rates to go up and down over a thousand years is confidence and do people want to borrow or do people not want to borrow? When people are confident, they want to borrow, people will lend. Rates are low. When people aren't confident, they don't want to borrow and nobody wants to lend. Now you got to pay it back, rates are going up. So, and you're in, you know, you believe rates are still going up, Sid? Uh, they, uh, um, okay. Um, common sense. Uh, uh, so, uh, histori me, historical experience tells me, and, and the, the charts tell me rates are going up. Yep. Okay. So, just for our listeners, last summer, a friend of mine and I were putting together a gold and silver thesis. We wanted to go long gold and silver ETFs, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I've been networking with Sid for a while. I said this in our last basis, but it's worth reviewing. And I thought, you know, we better go meet with Sid because he believes that rates are still going to go up. And that's not, that's not good for, for our positions here. Um, and you were right. You said the benchmark rate was going to... At least 4%. Up, up, at least 4%. And what was the rate at that and time? That, it was like 0. 0.5 or 0. 2 and a half. Okay. Well, yeah, it was like summertime. Okay. So I, I, they they gone up, but... You know, I think they were halfway to your call, and okay. and it it was a really aggressive call. Said I thought, are you kidding me? I mean, I thought that would literally crash 
uh, the real estate market, arguably, you know, let's say on average, it took market, uh, real estate down 15 to 20% somewhere in there. Yep. That's a big dip, but we had a big rip. So, you know, you, you lost a decent amount of the COVID bu- bubble, but that's here nor there. We're still sort of, we're still above that, that rate. And now we're at this point where there is some pain in the market. You've got, you're seeing, you know, what's happened in, um, in the pension fund in the UK. And now here, the cracks are certainly here. The financial system is showing its vulnerabilities, and people seem to think that just because that's happening, rates are going to go, are going to come down, and you know the markets are going to rip again. But that's not necessarily the case. It's not happening. It's All not right. happening. Look, look at how look the, the it, it's not. I would say it's not happening, and at all so far, uh, and and technically, by the way, when rates go up. Uh, it's, it's Elliott wave. It's up and down correction, up and a down correction, up and a down correction. That's what happens. And when that whole cycle is over, you get a big correction. So nothing goes straight up or straight down. And that's what we've been seeing. Corrections on the way up, but they've been going up. Now, yes. then we had a very quick sudden correction last week. And, uh, uh, I would say, uh, we're either, either going to have a continued, uh, correction, which is sideways to down, but then they have to go up again because the confidence level right now is is very, very poor. Now, uh, if things do stabilize, uh, all I can say is that we all know that government debts are going up huge. We know 500,000 bucks per person is not sustainable. We know interest will soon be 25% of uh, total government spending. Uh, so, uh, and we also know that the big banks are getting bigger. As a matter of fact, the big banks are now becoming divisions of the government. They were always divisions of the government in Canada. Now they're becoming divisions of the government by, in the U S because JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Citibank was told to lend, uh, money immediately to, uh, all, all the mid-tier banks. They just, they just demolished FIDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corp- Corporation. All uh, par value of all cash is guaranteed now. I mean, that's a major event. Well, I think it's important right now to sort of let's let's kind of talk to the average citizen. You know, there's people uh, listening right now that are probably new to investing. Right? They have maybe good jobs. They're happy with their job, and they're getting killed to inflation. And you sort of guided me in the right steps on how to how to sort of handle this type of environment. Do you want to? Kind of a just share your thoughts with what people can do right now, living in this environment and lots of financial uncertainty. Sure. Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna have a, a talk on. I think it's Sunday night, right? And yes. We're we'll gonna be going over how to build a uh, anti fragile. Right. Portfolio. So I think right now it, one needs to do two things, uh, and it's there's actually is one A and one B. So it's you got to do two things, and I call them both high priority. Number one is most most importantly. Build a robust portfolio, 1A, and 1B is um, build an anti-fragile portfolio. So as things improve or go up and down, you've got really good upside. So you want to, you want most important thing is to keep the downside protected. And then the other important thing is uh, it, when things start to improve as they improve, keep your upside uh, for a certain amount of capital, put a certain amount of capital out, like ten percent, so you've got 
what Nick, what Nicholas Taleb calls convexity, right? That's the approach, and I'd be talking about that on Sunday. But uh, the other principle behind that is that, um, you know, by the dip, uh, and you'll be okay in the long run, I think we're starting to realize that that's not exactly right. That has been right since 87 because of the massive um, money illusion. You know, real value investing in the market, investing in the equity market, you might have made in real terms a pretty small percentage. And with real estate, you might have made in real terms a small percentage or flat. But nominally, people felt richer and richer. But you got to admit, savings has gone down. And in the old days, people didn't keep re refinancing their homes. And now, except for the pretty wealthy, they keep refinancing it, right? So um, what I talked about is, number one, the most important asset is, is you. Maintaining a job, maintaining expertise, that's number one. Number two is cash is not trash. Number three is... Not anymore. <laughs> no, num number three, not at present, not at present. And there's two reasons for it. That's because everything else is incredibly volatile right now. And we might actually, we might actually see deflation once, as the way this thing finally unfolds once they realize that they can't keep the credit growth going. So uh, I think carrying debt right now is a bad, bad idea. I think anyone that's got a uh, still a huge mortgage and uh, a house based on inflatable assets has got to run some scenarios over the next two or three years to say, you know, where do I want to be? Less debt is better. Some real estate is important, uh, i.e. diversifying with different risk categories. Uh, sufficient cash is, is very important. Uh, and it, it's a good place to be. And, uh, you know, those are the first obvious steps. Uh, when it comes to subject, but I will say at least if you invest in certain stocks, um, they've done a lot less bad than other other guys. If you look at the stock at the S and P chart or the Nasdaq chart, while the news likes to talk about, hey, Nasdaq was up today and yesterday, which it was, um, but if you look at really technically what it's saying, it's all pretty pretty mushy. It's all pretty mushy. Um, frankly, uh, if you have money to put aside, and if you're younger. Uh, oil stocks are probably a good place, some oil stocks. Um, TD Bank, if you're going to be in banking, is probably okay because it's basically a division of the government and it's well run. Um, Canadian Utilities is actually you know, really quite good. Um, so there are some stocks to be in where you're sort of safe. Uh, we'll talk about more specifically about that and, and why I think it makes to have some gold. Um, now, Can the we question just, is I was yes. talking with. Um, PMs are us, actually. He's listening. Just so the audience knows, there's a couple people that have tried to come up as uh, as speakers, and I, I do allow the request, but then it's, for some reason, Twitter is just not allowing it right now. There must be a glitch. Um, but we'll continue on. Um, thanks for the request, though. And we'll fix so, that up. We'll fix that up. We'll fix that up, but it's a Twitter thing. So <laughs> so uh, PM, PMs, PMs are us, and I were talking about people's expectations when it comes to gold stocks. Right. And I'm not just necessarily talking about Barrick, but could be juniors, too. You know, a lot of people get into these stocks um, and get really frustrated with the price of gold. And if you go and you look at the price of gold over, um, you know, a five to a, even a five year chart, 
The price of gold has done exactly what it's supposed to do in times like this, when there's excessive amounts of money printing, right? Um, gold is, is a store of wealth at the end of the day. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a place where you're not going to lose your purchasing power, right? So anyone who's getting into the you know, gold and thinking that they're going to be the next millionaire, I mean, hey, if you happen to get into an ex- exploration company that makes a discovery and gets taken out, that's extremely rare, uh, especially in ex- exploration. It's basically 90, 95% failure. So you got to really, you got to be very careful and know how to play those stocks. Um, but you know, is there? Do you have any comments on that, Sid? On, on exactly why somebody would hold gold and maybe you know put expectations in in line? Yes. Okay. The first thing I'll say is this: um, there's a fundamental principle of technical analysis, which, which is based on cycles. Okay. And, and here, and here's the here's one of the fundamental principles. There's a lot of them, but one major principle is this. This cycle, properly defined, will be similar to the last one, but the way things work out have to be different. It's called alternation. And here's why it has to be different every time. Because 99% of the population that has experienced something recently think the next time the same kind of facts present themselves, they'll get the same result. Everybody has, you know, the term recency bias, right? Well, it's never the same. And it's never the same because when everybody hears fire and runs to go out at the back of the theater, nobody gets out because they can't get through the door. And if anyone's, everyone's at a parade and they're all standing on their toes to see better, nobody sees better because they're all doing it. So, so you can't, it's not going to work out just like it worked out last time. And that's a basic principle of fundamental analysis when you follow prices. So just because gold before the 87 50-year cycle used to go up during emergencies and up during inflation, it doesn't mean it's going to go up now. As a matter of fact, it's probably not going to go up because everyone's expecting it. The people who expect it already bought it, and the buying power is not there. Something else is going to happen. So, so you can't predict price specifically. The other thing is also is bull markets. If you look at bull markets, the pattern on bull markets tends to be very clean and very predictable. It's a five wave, up, down, up, down, up. And wave one, three, and five have got one specific pattern, and two and four have got various patterns. Bear markets are way more complicated, and they can go on forever. Bear markets aren't always that extreme. Uh, it has extreme parts, and they can go on for a long, long time. Just because we haven't had a long, long bear market since 87, which covers most people's, doesn't mean that once they hit, you're not going to get a long one. So that's important to understand gold. I, I agree with Nassim Taleb. Gold does not have convexity, but gold adds some robustness to the portfolio. So because over long periods of time, it's stable with inflation, that's a good thing. So if you're, you know, uh, 25 to 40, I think, you know, pockets of gold is okay, even older, depending on your wealth. If you're 65, I think it's a little late. Uh, now, when does it run? Well, you know what? If, if we get into you know, zero rates again, because of, or 1% rates again because of deflation, and if currency starts to really be a problem, the move. Look at gold in every currency except the Canadian and U.S. dollar. You go to the rest of the world, gold's been fantastic. Now, the U.S. currency has been dollarized because uh, uh, militarized, 
because gold is the uh, the U.S. dollar. You know, U.S. is the empire, right? And that's why Russia, Brazil, India, Iran, uh, and China are trying to get off it, and they're working hard to do it. Uh, so gold is robust, but it's not it's not um, you know anti fragile, and you can't predict it. You can't predict exactly what it's going to do, um, and you can't predict stocks either. You know, people used to think they could, but only because we had this massive bull run financed by the feds for a long time. Thanks for that, Sid. Um, okay, so we've kind of covered gold and um, how it uh, sort of could be a part of your portfolio. By the way, I don't think anyone should be uh, buying or selling any of the, any stocks based on what we're talking about today. At least I'm not uh, qualified to be giving advice, but you know, Sid's talking about how he lines up his portfolio and he'll do that. Um, and, and maybe while we're on that note, why don't we just get into it, Sid? Like, how are, where's your portfolio at right now? BRK, Berkshire Hathaway, BRK.A, uh, LMT, uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, I'm into. I'm also into one junior uh, silver stock, and uh, I've got some oil stocks, some large cap oil stocks. I've got uh, TD Bank, and uh, I've got some utilities, uh, and I've got a lot of cash. And gold. And gold. Now, my gold is in PHYS. It's in Sprott's um, uh, gold trust. Physical trust, PHYS. And the reason I'm doing that is because I don't feel like paying a a 25% premium to get the little briquettes. And I'm not at the point. And yeah, so I've been telling some friends of mine, actually, because they've been been interested in buying gold. And I I do bring up the uh, uh, the Sprott. Trust there. Um, okay, so you've got. And just to be clear, I I agree with Nicholas Taleb. I, I can talk about principles. I'm tell I'm telling you where I'm at, what I'm actually doing, right? But you know, you, you can't give advice for for two reasons. One is you don't know the person in detail. Number two is things are always changing. So if you're going to advise someone, you you got to keep in touch with them nonstop. So so you know. Yep, and you know what? So. I think I'm going to pull one of one of the positions you have, so you can kind of explain it. You mentioned Lockheed Martin, right? I think it would be a fascinating conversation, or at least for people to hear why you own that stock. Sure, I could do that. But George is on the line. George, George we should, I think we should give George a chance to sort of. So he's. Uh, I've been trying to get George in here now for the entire, basically the entire. Um, uh, space, but we're having a technical issue where oh, he sends a request bad. and it's not being accepted. So yeah, I mean, it would be fantastic to get him in, and but it's okay, okay. Is it, well, George, I apologize. I know George really well. He's a fantastic guy. He knows markets exceedingly well, and uh, that's unfortunate. But well, we we've got to fix that. So okay. he there, he does have a, he can send me questions though uh, via PM. So he has given me a question. Um, and I'll ask that question after you kind of talk about the uh, Lockheed Martin. Right. Okay. So you and I have been talking about Lockheed for uh, a long time, right? Since I met you. Yep. Okay. Uh, two years. Okay. Uh, COVID, uh, you probably know what that is. Uh, that's some viral thing that, that showed up in uh, 2020. Uh, when COVID hit, um, I was talking to my friends and I said, well, uh, we're going to have a world war pretty soon. 
they looked at me like I was crazy, right? And uh, that's okay. Now, the reason I said that was because uh, if you study uh, plagues, history of plagues, what happens during a plague is that people get very angry, they get very upset, and they lose confidence in their governments, and, and civility uh, goes down rapidly. Now, this was in the uh, March of uh, 2020, I'm saying this, right? When a lot of people thought that, that um, COVID wasn't even serious back then, right? That's right. Now, yeah. now, just for fun, what happened by April was I knew, I shouldn't say I knew, my entire thesis with COVID was not that serious, as everybody else was starting to think it was serious. And of course, it ended up COVID wasn't much worse than a bad flu, actually, if you look at the statistics. In any event, for all kinds of reasons, you've probably heard of the Thucydides Trap, which is a book written by uh, uh, Ray Dalio. Yep. And uh, that's about Thucydides, who, who was a Greek historian, like I said, I study history, so I read all these dudes. And uh, he talked about the, the plague of Athens and what had happened, so I, I can see it. Now, the plague doesn't have to be real, just like financial crises don't need, don't need to be caused by real problems. It just, it just has to be a perceived plague where bad things happen politically and culturally. Just like whether there's financial problems or not, who the heck knows? Uh, you know, if I, if I, if I give you my analysis on Amazon, you'd see Amazon is worth very little. It's overvalued by 350, 400%. And so far they, they've almost never made any money yet. It's got a trillion dollar market cap. Well, that's technical. That's, that's a positive perspective on try uh, on, on Amazon. If you can debate, if you want to debate that, please call me. I love talking to people. I'll give you all my analysis and it sort of stands out. I'd say pretty well. But it's, it's all about technicals. It's all about attitudes and how people feel about something. So uh, I figured, okay, war is coming. I mean, what do you do? You buy military uh, 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 you know, companies. So, you know, I bought it at around uh, 250, 260, 270, and it's now 480. Can I and pause you there? This and is before look, Ukraine. This is before the whole Ukraine situation. Long before Ukraine. Yeah. So this is where, you know, I, I just want our li listeners to understand. I've been networking with Sid now for a, at least a few years and he, he, he would be talking about this stuff and, and people would, you know, okay, what's this guy talking about? You know, you can, you can kind of feel it. Right. And even I, even myself, you can throw me in there, but all of these things happen. <laughs> so anyways, go ahead. Well, if you look at the chart, um, it's, it's a cool looking chart, right? Lockheed Martin. I'm just, I'm just uh, pulling it up right now first of all the stock has not declined <laughs> it's like it's 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 at the all-time high which is which is sort of funny right take a look at amazon meta uh look look at those charts right uh, even berkshire hathaway for that matter uh yeah, so, so from it, a rel relative strength perspective no, no no not a relative strength an absolute strength this is an absolute right it's a, it's it's yeah this thing is close it's at the all-time high it was 480 it's now 475 <laughs> and if you look at the chart, it's going up, right? Wow. You you had an extended wave from 2013 to uh, 2018. You had the 2018 had a correction, one year correction. It was a uh, it was a, a, a what they call a flat, okay. Then you had a a a a, a, um, a small um, uh, third wave. Usually the third waves are, are longer, but you had a small. It, actually, we're in the middle of that wave, really. But let's say we had a small third wave. Then you had a big 2020 correction, 
which was basically uh, a zigzag. And then you had an extended correction over 2020, I think is like a, a double flat, so to speak. And we've been in a bull market ever since. Up, down, up, down, up, and it's going to keep going up. And uh, yeah, I did it because of COVID. And you, it's not something that you're selling right now, so? No. You're bullish on it long term. Yep. Well, I'm bullish okay. on the chart. I'm bullish on the chart. I'm going to get to uh, a few questions here that were sent to me because people can't speak. <clears throat> okay. And we got, we'll, fix, we'll fix that up. We'll fix that up because it's really important that people can speak. Yeah. Stuff. We'll fix uh, it up. I, I am familiar with sometimes these uh, Twitter, Twitter spaces have technical issues, um, but it is what it's kind of out of our control. However, you can always private message me your question. You can DM me, I should say. So I've got one right now. Question for Sid. Aren't Canadian banks at risk of massive losses by the end of this year when mortgage renewals keep increasing? Yes. But homeowners can't afford them. Um, yes, they are. They absolutely are. Um, so therefore, um, I'm sort of going with the, uh, with the uh, chart and uh, I'm going with the technicals. And now, if you look at the, at the technicals, uh, we had a huge buy in 2020, and basically we're in a correction right now. Uh, 2020 bottom at 36, it got up to 84. That's 50 dollars. You could expect a 25 dollar correction. 84 minus 20 uh, minus uh, what's? Uh, let me see. Uh, got up to 84. It bottomed at uh, 40. That's uh, 40 dollars. You can expect a 0.5 correction. That's 20. 84 minus 20 is 64. <laughs> so it's where, the, where it should be on a correction. If it starts to weaken like a lot more than that, uh, okay, th then you can be lightening up. Uh, but so far, it's still on a bullish trend. Now, uh, I got to talk about the fundamentals. Um, this sounds funny, uh, but I do not believe fundamentals matter. Uh, I do not believe fundamentals matter. Uh, Should we pause for a second right there? Everyone yes. Just kind of scratch their head. Fundamentals yeah. don't matter. Explain, Sid. Got you. Got some explaining to, to do. Sir. Well, it's a separate talk, and it's sort of a academic kind of talk, but but it's mathematical. If you did a, C, a, a true CFA analysis, not based on the cap M, but based on the more traditional net present values, uh, up until recently, all stocks are overvalued by. Uh, they're, they're, all stocks are probably trading at four to six times what they should be trading at in terms of a hardcore valuation. And if, if I did, uh, you know, if you buy a private business, uh, you're, you're going to pay three times EBITDA, maybe four times EBITDA, and that's it. And uh, you really know the business, and etc. Uh, you don't look at earnings that much. You have to figure out what kind of earnings you can get, what you can take out. And you're, you're looking at fully equity financed. Public stocks, once stocks are public, people don't do that anymore. People just look at where's the price going. And then they work backwards to say, okay, how can I uh, justify the multiples? And then it's all done on a relative basis. And Amazon's a perfect example. But if I did Google and Meta, I could show you the things overvalued you know, many, many times. To put it differently, there's a reason that the price to book value of all these companies are like 
four to 10 times. Now, what does that mean that the price, the, I'm an accountant as well as a chemical engineer, by the way, and I used to, you know, I, 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 I studied all this fundamental stuff in great detail. I used to work at a trading desk, uh, derivatives desk, uh, convertible preferred. So, you know, I, I've been, I built models. I'm, I'm very into these things, but I was always confused in the 90s and 80s when I was doing this stuff. I was always confused. I couldn't understand the valuations, but I kept my mouth shut because I wanted to make money and hold on to my job, but I could never understand it, to be honest with you. But then when I started doing my own trading, I sort of could. So if you look at price to book, all the big cap stocks, most of the S&P stocks, the price to book is like four times, five times. Amazon's a good example. What does that mean? Well, what that means is if they take a dollar of cash uh, three or four years later, it's worth 20 cents, but the stock is trading at what they initially invested, which is why it's four times book or five times book. What does that mean? It means the internal rate of return is negative. So how come stocks which are negative could have, in, which have internal rates of return can have such high prices? Well, stocks are an indicator of the social mood. They're an indicator of optimism. And when people are optimistic, stocks go up. When they're pessimistic, stocks go down. They've been pretty, pretty damned optimistic for a long time. That's what I mean by, by fundamentals don't matter. Now, what fundamentals do matter is if it's a junior stock, it's just getting going. Management's really, really important. They can drive it or they can, they can destroy it. New businesses mostly fail, so management's important. They got to be able to raise capital. Some people can do it, some can't. So for <clears throat> that kind of stock, it's important. Now, and I would say, have, can I stop you there? Yes. yes I know sir. some good management teams in the junior space that understand technicals and get the right promoters and the right you know, people into the stock early. Um, you know, it's very important because they play those technicals. They'll, the, you know, yes. they'll, they make sure they release news when the technicals are looking good. And these are all ways to get a market cap up. And then of course you got another strategy to raise money. So, but I mean, in fairness, there are a lot of people that think fundamentals matter, but when you look at all the, you know, all the money printing and where that money's, I mean, have, do you have any idea, Sid, how much money that's been printed over the last 10, 20 years and how much, how much of that has ended up in the market? Well, in, st in the stock market. Well, uh, you know, uh, look, bank reserves have gone from, I do, bank reserves have gone from 50 billion in 2008 to uh, four or five trillion. So that's your multiple for how much money has gone into the market. It's a uh, uh, billion over 50, a uh, trillion over 50 billion is 20, 60 times. 60, oh, oh, you know, like the money going to markets since 2008 has been phenomenal. So, but that's also why fundamentals don't matter. It's a big, big reason why fundamentals don't matter. And then you look at stock buybacks, you look at the incentives for executives. I mean, you know, like people are playing that too, right? Because they understand like, you know what? These executives have massive payouts if, this, it, it, you know, if they can drive the value up. Um, fundamentals don't matter. Okay, I'll give you another another idea. Uh, when interest rates have been going down for thirty years, assets have had to go up for thirty years. When interest right. rates went from twenty percent to zero, um, that's basically uh, infinity. Neil Cash Carey, one of the Fed governors, he's the you know, the bald headed dude. You know, like uh, uh, I was actually talked to him in two thousand eight when he was just getting going because I was. 
believe it or not, talking to congressmen and senators in the U.S. in 2008 about what was happening. This is, that's, that's an interesting discussion, by the way. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick story on that. And uh, in 2020, he was on the, on the TV, 60 Minutes. I posted it today saying, infinite money. We have infinite money, infinite money. Well, he's Mr. Infinite Money Man. Yeah. Um, and right now, you know, Trump took the, the, the deficit up by $4 trillion. I'm sorry, uh, the, the money supply up by, by, four, by $4 trillion one afternoon in March of 2020. And Yellen and, and Jerome and uh, Fiddick took it up by $2, 3000000000000 trillion uh, a long time ago, like the last 24 hours. Today, since 9.30, right? They just said all bank assets, monet- monetary assets will be valued at par. So, uh, you know, that's what drives the stock price. Now, it's interesting that when they completely bloated uh, the money supply in March 2020, it all went into the market. Now, we all sort of know that with the, uh, the meme stocks, uh, you know, you know kill the big guy stocks, buy the bankrupt stocks. Uh, you know, uh, Jack Dorsey's tweet goes for what? How much did he sell his tweet for, his first tweet? Three million? I don't know. Some big number, multi millions. What's what, what did it sell out recently? Like forty thousand dollars. Oh, his actual tweet. Yeah, his actual. Yeah. yeah. So you know, a lot of funny stuff has been happening, right? There's a reason Bitcoin is here. Uh, so, on that note, let me yeah. let me just pause you there. Second question from uh, from George there. Whether you like crypto or not, don't we need crypto as a parallel financial system if the fiat system collapses? Better than trading chickens for firewood, no? Well, um, I'll tell you what the Fed's going to do next. And they already started with today's announcement. Uh, you're going to get Digicoin and can, can coin very, very soon. You broke and up there. Just re- Can you say that sentence again? You're, you're going to see U.S. Digicoin and can coin very, very soon. You're going to see government digital currency, not crypto, but government digital currency uh, very soon. Um, now, Sid, there was an announcement today or yesterday from the, uh, the Federal Reserve right. about a July launch. And this is in the nest for people that want to follow. This yeah. probably goes right to your point, right? Absolutely. The, you see, I, I was in Washington talking, this, this is interesting, talking to uh, Congressman, Congressman Cole. I was talking to, to some of the senators from Texas. Um, I, was, I was in California at the Reagan Center with the Republicans. I hang, I hang with all the guys because I was lobbying for my potash project. George will remember this, my potash project uh, in New Mexico. So I had to do a lot of politics and I met these guys and I started talking about the financial stuff that was going on and they thought it was really interesting. It, they had no idea the way the financial system worked and what was happening in 2008. So TARP, it took TARP... Uh, Quite a while to, to get in there. It took what four months, five months, six months. There was it took a lot of discussion. They they didn't want to do it, etc. Well, over the last few years, they know exactly what's happening. Every single congressman knows exactly what's happening. The senator. That's why so many of them are multimillionaires right now. And uh, the, the changes what what they had to implement uh, this time wasn't three months. It was like wasn't even three days. Right. Well, it's going to have to speed up. And they're just going to have instant money that they can just, you know, in terms of the, the discount window, instead of the reverse repo market, instead of this, uh, you know, new program, 
uh, that, the, that they've uh, put in. Um, today, the uh, BTFP, you know, bank term funding program, somebody said actually stands for buy these, buy the F, you know what, pro dip, right? Pivot, I mean, buy the F and pivot, pivot BTFP. Um, so they're accelerating it. So they need, they need that. Now, in terms of Bitcoin and stuff like that, it's a long discussion. I've studied it carefully. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's pretty interesting, but I'll say this. Uh, we know that there's a problem with, with currencies, the, uh, and, and we know something's going to happen. Um, if the government's going to actually let people transact for cryptocurrencies, you know, broadly and replace regular currencies, um, that, that's, that's sort of interesting, right? But, but, but you know, I don't, I don't know what the government's going to do, but I don't think the government, you know, it, it's, it's an issue, right? I mean, you've had, you know, Joostra, who's, who's very negative on cryptocurrencies. He's had his debates, uh, et cetera, with the guys. So I'm not an expert, but, you know, yeah, okay. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with, um, with having a certain amount of, of cryptocurrencies because we know that um, the regular currencies have, have got to get fixed up. Now, if you look at hyperinflation in Germany, which is a perfect model, uh, over the 1920s, the, 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 the uh, Deutsche Mark was falling, and I forget when it peaked out, sometime in the late 20s, it got, had to be completely redefined uh, because uh, they had massive inflation. Now, once it got all defined, et cetera, et cetera, and all redone, um, at that point, um, uh, you had deflation. You had deflation, right? Now, if I look at the chart on, on Bitcoin, here's what the chart uh, tells me. From 2015 to 2018, you had, you had a wave one. From 2018 to 2020, you had a correction. You had a flat. The flat was it went from 20,000 to 8,000 to 10,000, and then at the bottom, that's a down, an A wave, an up, and a down wave. Bear markets tend to be long two years. That's fine. Then you had your third uh, correction, right? And your third correct, I'm sorry, your third impulse wave. That was a perfect impulse wave from 2020 to 2021, okay? Now, right now, uh, we are in a... Um, we're in a we're in a correction mode, right? It was it was it was a, a what they call an expanded flat. Believe it or not, it went uh, down uh, from uh, sixty to thirty. It went that was A. It went up to sixty thousand. That was B. And now we're in quite a long C. So basically, the correction it went from uh, ten thousand to uh, fifty thousand, forty thousand. If you had a serious correction, that'd be about thirty two thousand bucks. So it went from uh, 60 minus 30 is uh, 30. So it should have basically stabilized at 30. It's, 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 you know, sort of getting up there, right? So I don't know what's going to happen next, but these corrections are, are, are quite long. Also, when you've got something new, Elliott Wave doesn't necessarily apply. But yeah, people obviously like it. and I got no problem. Now, if you get Bitcoin, I think you should be a node. You should be a full node and get it as a full node. If you buy Bitcoin as an exchange, now you're not only are you not fully you're not this well maybe you're distributed but you're not decentralized right so you, you gotta you gotta buy it uh 
you know, as a note, if you do that, then I think that's cool. So you actually do support Bitcoin then? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, hey, if anybody could predict the world by 60 seconds with perfect knowledge, uh, they'd be a lot richer than, uh, than, uh, uh, what's it, uh, than Elon Musk. So you'd have Bitcoin in your anti-fragile portfolio? You know what? Bitcoin is an anti-fragile investment because, because if it goes up, it'll really go up. There's, there's a perfect anti-fragile investment. Now, the principle with anti-fragile investments are, you know, be very careful. You know, care, you know, if you've got a portfolio of X dollars, let's say 100,000 or a million or I don't know, whatever. Let's say it's, let's say it's 100,000. Let's say it's a million. If you want to put uh, anti-fragile investments in, um, in that portfolio, you want to have two to five anti-fragile investments. You're hoping they go up 20 times. So you, you got to work out the math, right? You know, three anti-fragile, say five anti-fragile investments, you know, assume two work, two work out, eight don't, or one works out and four doesn't. Run the numbers, put the multiples, and that's how you decide how much to put in there. That's the way you got to do it. Anybody that definitely believes they can predict the future for sure is uh, history doesn't bear that out. So, do you own Bitcoin? Uh, I don't. I don't. I do not. Uh, I do not. You know, I've got gold. I've got gold. I'm an older guy. Um, and uh, if I was, you know, 38 now, I, I, I'd probably have some. Uh, but bearing in mind, I, I do get involved with junior uh, mineral stocks, and uh, you know th those are seriously anti-fragile. <laughs> <laughs> now, if, so if you were to buy a Bitcoin, you'd probably buy it in a cold wallet. You better believe it. Uh, I, yeah. I would, I would uh, set up a full node, or or at least at least a node, and I would transact with somebody I knew and found. Yeah. And I would do it on the computer, and then I would download it in the cold, cold wallet. Exactly. I would, I would never, ever, ever do it through exchange. exchange. And, and, you know, Sam Bankman fried, <laughs> you know, fried banker. I mean, that, that's why. I mean, how can you do something which is based on a distributed, decentralized system? How can you buy it in a completely centralized system? I just don't. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I do. Have, I have a cold wallet myself, personally. Right. Uh, does Sid agree with Ray Dalio that the U.S. empire is currently on its way to falling? That's a fantastic question for Sid. I already know the answer, um, but great question again. Okay. Um, the Roman Empire, the Greek Roman Empire started 1000 B.C. That was a millennial uh, uh, wave on, on Elliott Wave. Way, Elliott Waves are fractals. It's really worth talking about fractals and what Elliott waves really are. And the reason you have to understand fractals is that if, if, you're, if you're doing technical analysis, if you're not doing it hourly and daily and weekly and monthly and within, within the longer term, which means like 50-year cycles, you're actually not doing technical analysis because <clears throat> it's based on fractals. It's a long discussion. Uh, Bob Prechter in his book, he, he's the technical guy best in the world, would, would explain that. So look, uh, the, the Roman Empire uh, was in its big bull run from the Romans and the Greeks, like put them the one, from 1000 BC to 50 AD. It took, when they started to slow down, it took from 50 AD to uh, 476 for it to collapse. So the collapse alone took 
400 years. Now, if you look at Britain, that's the next model. Modern-day Britain started under Henry VII, Henry VIII. Very interesting story. It got invented by Henry VIII. He killed everybody he didn't like. He destroyed the church. You all had to become Anglicans. It was quite interesting. So Britain was strong from 400, four, uh, 1470, under the 7th and the 8th, until the uh, 1720. That was like, uh, how long is that? That's 240 years, right? But it took Britain from 1720 until the end of World War I to really get weak, and they really didn't disappear until later. So when an empire goes down, it takes a long time, right? Okay, so when did America start to go down? Well, I think America started to go down right now. But what does history tell you? It could take 100 years. Uh, you'll have a lot of ups and downs in the meantime. So, so Ray Dalio uh, is, is 100% right. Uh, based on history, because we had, and, and we've had the Egyptian cycles, we've had the Greek Roman cycles, and right now, and then we had the Dark Ages, you know, uh, uh, until, you know, uh, what's his name? The, the Mongol invasion occurred in 1290. Uh, that caused a, uh, you know, from 1290 until, uh, uh, you know, 16, uh, around 1450, a 150-year bear market, right? And then the Reformation was the next bull market. So these things take a long time. I think America is going to be around for a long time. Uh, certainly anyone on this call, uh, America is not going to you know, become like Britain uh, during their lifetime. But it's weakening. China's coming up. And uh, who knows who's going back up there with them? You don't know. But China's definitely coming up. In terms of demographics, by the way, it's interesting. Uh, China's got demographic problems. America's got demographic problems. So here's my long-term theory as to why all these so-called illegal immigrants are coming into the U.S. The U.S. knows they need citizens or else they're going to have a serious decline in population. They had a similar problem in the 1890s, 1900. So they started wars and they, and they, took, they took over Cuba. They took over America. They took over Panama. They took over the Philippines. A lot of people don't realize it or haven't studied history. But right now, America is starting to shrink. They can't take over more countries. Who's been taking over Africa? Uh, who's been funding Latin America? We know it's China, right? So you can see these things are happening. I got a message from at Exeter. Thanks for your, your PM. Does Sid have any comments on the Chinese economy? Uh, there's a lot of reports out there that, uh, you know, they kind of have been propping up their, their, their own economy. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. They're propping up their economy big time, and we all know the Americans are propping up their economy big time. Uh, we know that there's lots of empty apartment buildings in uh, China, and we know that there's lots of uh, unemployed poor people in America. Now, uh, the positive thing about America is that they're, they're bringing in a lot of people illegally, but they, they want them in there, so they're, they're growing the population. But the positive thing for China is that China is now doing exactly what Theodore Roosevelt and uh, McKinley did and Woodrow Wilson did. He, uh, they expanded through war, but they also expanded through uh, expansion. They became the Britain of the 20th century because Britain expanded through colonialism, which is what America did. Well, China's been doing it. So, you know, China knows they need markets, and that's why they're hitting uh, Latin America hard, and that's why they're hitting um, – Africa heart. Now, you know, recently China has been making 
has been uh, establishing peace between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? You know, China is working with Russia. So China is expanding their, 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 their portfolio of consumers for their products. So that's how they're trying to salvage what they're doing. The Americans, they're doing a lot of funny stuff, too. I don't want to get into it right now, but you know what they're doing in Eastern Europe. So, and they're also bringing in citizens. So both countries are dealing with the, with, with, with the person I just asked that question. They're dealing with the same problems. So, and the problems are so huge that they're not just saying, well, we got to sell more to the Americans. The Americans aren't just saying, well, we got to, you know, uh, like, like there's, there's, they're coming up with dramatically new solutions. Uh, but, but I would say both countries are having serious problems. And, you know, we're shooting down balloons that are presumably, uh, you know, spy things from China. Uh, we're saying the Chinese caused uh, COVID. The co- Chinese are saying we caused COVID. You know, the universities, uh, we're saying Russia is an imperialist. Russia is saying we're an imperialist. You know, there's a lot of big events going on. So all I can say is that's why I like technical analysis. Look at the charts. That's why I like diversification. And you got to keep open-minded. So I keep getting people uh, requesting to speak, which is obviously fantastic. Um, but uh, there's a glitch right now with Twitter, and, and we, we can't bring people in. So We'll, we'll, fix, have- we'll fix that up. We'll fix it up. We need Elon to fix it, but unfortunately, it's kind of a part of uh, the Twitter spaces. So, just want you can just keep private messaging me or sorry, DMing me your questions, and I'll keep asking. Yeah, um, but we'll fix it up if we can. I, I promise. This is not, this is this is purely accidental. It's just our incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sid, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the U.S. Uh, and how they're exporting inflation? Uh, well, it's real simple. Uh, they have they have turned the U.S. dollar into bullets. Everybody owes their debts. You know, all the Europeans they owe debts in, in U.S. dollars. The euro took over. Euro dollar took over 30, 40 years ago. Oil's been priced in U.S. dollars. So therefore, uh, the U.S. dollar is 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 where people have to be. So when you take the rates up, people have to go to U.S. dollars. Uh, and, and the foreign dollars have to go down. So, and, and if the U.S. dollar is deflating in terms of gold, copper, real goods, then because everybody else has to use U.S. dollars, they're deflating. And then if everybody else with higher interest rates has to create more of their own currency so they can pay the interest, um, now their currency gets even worse. So... When you're gold, when you're when you're the gold standard, and the U.S. dollar currently is the gold standard, when that standard, when that ruler goes from being 12 inches to 120 inches, and then 240 inches, or I'm, I, I should, you know, then the ruler's getting bigger and bigger, and everybody else is, is paying exactly the same price. That's the problem, and everybody else cannot pay these higher interest rates in order to keep their currency high. Now, last week we found out what these higher interest rates are doing. They're knocking down the par value of bonds, right? Uh, Long duration assets are knocking down the par value of bonds, right? What did Janet Yellen and and FIDIC do uh, this weekend? They said, we will finance banks and give them 100% of par value 
that for the loans, right? We're going to revalue your assets. So they've been pumping up the price of the assets for 50 years. It didn't work anymore with the high rates. Is that a surprise? Well, no, because it was the decreasing rates going to zero that took it up. What are they doing now? Now they're these monthly auction preferred shares. They're artificially keeping the price high by printing more money. Uh, so, yeah, we're in inflation. I mean, well, and that also goes to your point about fundamentals not really mattering, right? I mean, how can you basically, you know, how, the Fed is basically stepping in there and expanding their balance sheet and, and you know, taking losses off the, the banks, no? They were up until quantitative tightening and they started again uh, in the last 24 hours. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and what are they calling that program? It's basically a TARP 2.0. Yeah, it's um, you know it's it's the bank term funding program. Uh, even though your bond is worth eighty three dollars, we'll say it's worth a hundred, and we'll lend you a hundred dollars on your eighty three dollar bond. Um, <laughs> sort of sounds like negative interest rates, right? Yeah. Okay, well, we've been going now for uh, for you know well over an hour. Um, Sunday we have a spaces that we're gonna, we're going to get into. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about what we're going to talk about on Sunday? Um, Could end it there. I, I think we're going to. You know, I've got uh, various heroes uh, since since I really started to you know invest in the S P five hundred. Warren Buffett's okay; he's not a hero, but he's a thinker, so I like him. Uh, he's always got the multiple theories. Jesse Livermore, like for a lot of guys who trade, he's one of my heroes. Uh, Ari Elliott and Bob Prechter, technically guys are heroes. Now, George Soros, I, I, I liked him years ago, and then, then I sort of went for the propaganda. I was a bad guy. But then I started reading his book, uh, again, uh, The Alchemy of Finance. I realized, you know what? This guy is smart. There's a reason he's a billionaire. And uh, he's also pretty honest in his books. So I like him, and he, I, I learned a lot from him. And Ray Dalio, I've learned a lot from. And Nassim Taleb, I think, is a really smart dude. He came up with all kinds of stuff I never would have thought of, and I've been studying him. And he wrote The Black Swan, you know, random events, fooled by randomness. I started reading him in 2008 when I was, when I was looking to understand what was going on, and I was talking to congressmen and senators, and I was down there about all this stuff. He wrote Fooled by Randomness and uh, Black Swan. An anti-fragile, completely novel concept uh, about investing. It's sort of like an intelligent man's version of the capital asset pricing model. And he knows that there's no such thing as fundamentals. There is, I guess, but uh, we never know what they are. And by the way, Jesse Livermore said the same thing, and George Soros said exactly the same thing. Uh, George Soros calls them uh, useful fallacies or fertile fallacies. Livermore said, who knows why anything happens? Just, just read the tape. but. That's the skill set. And Taleb said basically the same thing. Um, so I like his anti-fragile concept, and I think it's very important for the modern person trying to not lose capital and maybe make some capital. So that's what we're going to be, how to, how to build an anti-fragile, you know, what is anti-fragility and how do you build an anti-fragile portfolio? So friends, listeners, um, today was definitely to talk about sort of, you know, the problems and what's really going on in the markets. And Sunday is going to be about more, more solution-oriented and how Sid uh, you know, has his models and how he sets up his own anti-fragile 
portfolio. Again, there's a lot of a lot of Twitter Spaces uh, that you know people are doing these now all day long. Um, it's like another form of enter- entertainment, and that's great. I'm not trying to judge anyone, but if you're just looking for you know market reactions and stuff like that, that's kind of on the lower end of the value metric for me. Um, so we're trying to deliver high value here and kind of get into the history and cycles and 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 really broaden people's perspective, investors' perspective. And I think that's that comes in into play massively on how you set up your portfolio. And we're in polarizing times, and you know you can easily get into making some really stupid decisions here if you don't see things properly. So. Um, Sid, I just want to say thank you very much for your time today. Amazing, amazing content. Yeah, and and, and uh, like I said, this too. Um, I look, I'm not. I don't want to be a lecture. I don't want to be vomiting stuff for stuff. I hate my opinions. You know, uh, I really want to get a dialogue going. And if if I'm reachable, and I I love talking to people. I'm learning, and, and I, I, I I like this to be two way. And, and thanks for the opportunity, Carl. Absolutely. And uh, you know, one last thing I will, I'll say. Um, Sometimes when, when, you know, when I first started networking with Sid, he would say things that are very difficult to take in. It kind of breaks your, your infrastructure a little bit as a human being. Um, but he backs it all up with history. And so it's nothing against Sid personally, but sometimes it just takes people to, to Sid's one of those guys where he'll tell you things and he's far ahead. And then the world goes on and time goes on. And then you go, you start thinking about Sid. You're like, wait a minute. Somebody was telling me about this, and then you're like, "Ah, Sydney." So, um, you know, yeah, my my daughter says similar stuff. She says I give her a headache, and I'm always wrong. <laughs> That's funny, <laughs> um, but no, and and you know, listen, if you're if you're you know if you're gonna hop on a, a spaces with us, and you're looking to be told, you know, what to do, it's, it's you got to do the work. You know, Sid has studied studied hours and hours, and probably hundreds of hours. Um, into these books. He hasn't just glanced over them, right? I've seen these books that he has in his office. He highlights a lot of words on pages, goes and studies those words, and he's put in an immense amount of work in. So, And, and I do apply it in trading. So I try to see what works and what doesn't work, right? But if it doesn't work, I drop it. Well, there's a couple stock chats we're in together. I won't mention who they are. And there's been a lot of people that have mentioned things over the last few years. And, you know, uh, they're down about 80%, 90%. But, you know, Sid, not to try to you know big you up as a big promoter or anything but the ones that you brought across my desk uh, are, are up <laughs> so you know you know what you're doing proof of concept my friend um last words leave it over to you said sid and then when you're done i'll just end the spaces uh look i'm really enjoying this uh uh we, sh- we should work on the, the, uh, the twitter uh, technical thing make sure it works and I'll make myself available with uh, you know email and phone calls and stuff. And I, I'd love to have dialogue with a lot of people. I really enjoy learning. You know, I work. We work with uh, Steve Singh. He's a phenomenal guy. Uh, George Ciolas is is awesome. And I I, I love to reconnect again with George. And it, it's just 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 great. All right, fantastic. You can catch us here Sunday, seven fifteen Eastern Standard Time. I believe we were successful in recording this, so we'll put it out on Spotify, Apple. Um, YouTube as an audio, and uh, you can listen to the recorded version on Twitter. Take care. Have a great evening. And uh, yeah, be safe. Bye. Thanks.